All right, today is Palm Sunday. As you watch this uh, video and as we've been continuing to say, we have finished our 40 days of the um, prayer campaign, and we're supposed to do that extra week of, you know, when God doesn't answer our prayer. But today, because it's Palm Sunday is a very important day in our church calendar, so that's what I'm going to speak about today. Um, every year, it turns out that I normally preach the Palm Sunday sermon, and so not surprisingly, I'm sure you're going to hear things that I've said before, stories or illustrations or, or sermon points and things. They've all come together. I've, I've preached probably like 20 um, Palm Sunday sermons. So um, today, being Palm Sunday, for those of you who don't know background and information, um, it is the beginning of Holy Week or Passion Week, as many of us. The word Passion Week really got popular after the Passion of the Christ, the movie with uh, Mel Gibson. But yeah, Passion Week or Holy Week, and it's Jesus' final week here on earth. And as you know, the story goes, he's arrived in Jerusalem, and up to that point, he's been traveling. He's been traveling with his disciples, and he passed through Jericho where he met Zacchaeus. A lot of you guys are familiar with the story of Zacchaeus up in the tree, uh, the chief tax collector. He also passed through Bethany uh, where he stayed at the home of some friends. You guys know Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He stayed a few days there, spent time with his friends before moving on to Jerusalem, which was his final destination. So Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is titled the Triumphant Entry. As you'll see in most of your Bibles, depending on whatever translation that you guys read from, it's, um, there's a little title there that says the Triumphant Entry. And the day begins with these chain of events as he enters into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, as we see this picture over and over again, and it just... It begins a chain of events throughout that week that culminates, as you guys know, on Friday on his uh, death and then on Sunday, his resurrection. So if you guys can follow along, we're going to open to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. This is the NIV that I'm reading from. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say that the Lord needs it and send it back here shortly. They went, and they found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there, they did. They actually asked, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
So this triumphant entry is recorded in all four of the Gospels in the New Testament. But it's only the Gospel of John in the book of John where he specifically mentions that the leaves or the tree branches that they're using comes from the nearby palm trees. That the people went and they cut the palm branches from the palm trees. And that's why we get the images of the, the palm the, um the branches, as well as the word Palm Sunday. So let's imagine that day. It's over 2,000 years ago, and you're kind of imagining this entry. And if you were there, whether you're um, you know, one of the characters, one of the people um, on that day in Jerusalem, it's very, you know, lots of things are happening. You can kind of smell and see and hear everything that's happening. I'm sure that there was a lot of excitement and a lot of anticipation. There's large crowds, maybe something like this. So this is just a picture I found. Um, people with the palm branches welcoming. He's coming and riding on this colt. And people are shouting, Hosanna. They've put the branches on the ground as well. Um, and they've, they're welcoming him triumphantly into the city. So something like this. But for me, I kind of imagine, and like I said, I think I've said this before, I kind of imagine it more like a red carpet event. I see Jesus uh, coming in. He's quite famous. Um, he's well-known, right? Stories of his miraculous healings and stories of his miracles have preceded him. I mean, raising Lazarus from the dead, that's huge. Um, healing blind Bartimaeus, that's huge. So all these stories of healings and miracles have spread. So he's famous. It's like Jesus, he's a celebrity, and he's arriving at the main event now. And the crowds of people are like the paparazzi, like you see here. He's riding in. The crowds of people, paparazzi, um, and they're like the fans of movie stars or a movie premiere. As the main um, guest is, is moving in and walking in. And they're all trying to catch a glimpse of him. And maybe they're all trying to snap a photo of him. And then also, who else do we have as he's um, riding into the city? We've got the Pharisees and the chief priests, religious leaders. Pharisees and chief priests, I can imagine, they're standing there. And I kind of see them as like when you do the red carpet event, there's the E! channel, the E! network entertainment. And you've got all the fashion critics and in interviewing saying, oh, what are you wearing? And, you know, who are you wearing? Who styled you? And things like that. And so they're the ones that are always kind of, you know, watching everything. They're waiting for a wardrobe malfunction to happen. You know, they're very critical about how people look. So I imagine the Pharisees and the chief priests, religious leaders, are kind of like these, the fashion police. And they're watching everything that Jesus does. And they're just waiting to catch him uh, slipping up or doing something. And then there are the Roman soldiers. Let's add the Roman soldiers here. The Roman soldiers also are nearby. And they're acting as security for the event. Of course, any big event, there's always a terror threat these days, anytime there are large gatherings. So you've got these Roman soldiers. And they're ready to move in. They're, help, you know, they're ready to move in in a moment's notice if the crowd gets out of hand, if there's some threats, if there's some uprising. Anytime there's a large crowd, um, these things can happen. So there's security for the event. And I, it's this kind of atmosphere that I kind of imagine. You know, when we read the Bible and you're thinking, oh, you know, the historical context of it, you know, so many years ago. But kind of try to think about it in today's, uh, in modern times. And so this is the picture that I kind of 
uh, go with as I'm reading the Bible. And it's this kind of atmosphere that I imagine. So here on Palm Sunday, as we reflect upon this sort of scene, I think it's also a very good time for us to examine our attitudes, to examine our hearts towards Jesus, and also towards one another, because that was his greatest message, was not only pointing to God and pointing, you know, that Jesus was Lord, but the second commandment, which was to love your neighbor as, um, like the first commandment, to love one another. And so that's what I want to talk about today is our attitudes. As all this is unfolding, you know, we hear every year about Palm Sunday, every year the message of Easter and resurrection and Good Friday, message of the cross, but let's really this week, as we move into Good Friday and move into Holy Week, to consider our attitudes, our emotions, our thoughts, our meditations. This is what Pastor Chuck Swindoll said. Chuck Swindoll, he was famous back in the day, but I haven't really heard about him lately. I think that his uh, radio broadcast, is he still doing it, Insight for Living? Yeah, oh, he is. He must be like 80-some years old. He's, he's, still, <laughs> he's going strong. So Insight for Living, if you guys have ever heard. He's written a lot of books. I've read a lot of uh, his books. Famous pastor, author, radio broadcaster. And he says this about attitude. He says, the longer I live, and we've seen he's lived a long time, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do, than appearances, than giftedness or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. People's attitudes. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding attitude that we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past we cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one thing we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. I think this is so true when I think about Chuck Swindoll, that 90%, 10% is what happens to me and 90% is how we react to it. I think that's what makes the difference. Because bad things happen to good people all the time. Certain things happen to everybody in one time or another in your life. But how it affects and our reaction and our attitude toward these same things, I think, makes all the difference. So the first uh, thing, the first thing that I wanted to look at were um, there are various characters and players that on that day, again, kind of, you know, transport your mind back to the triumphant entry, Jerusalem, the people are there. There are various characters and players, four of them to be exact, that I want to review and to go over. And I want to examine and go with you their attitudes and kind of see if, which of those four, which of those attitudes that you can identify most with. So the first one, Attitudes towards Jesus of these four characters or four players in this drama, this narrative. The first one is the crowd. Obvious, right? The crowds. Jesus and his disciples weren't the only ones that were arriving in Jerusalem. Hundreds and thousands of pilgrims and people were streaming into the city of Jerusalem at this time because it was the time of the Passover. People were coming in to celebrate Passover. Passover is this Jewish feast. It commemorates and remembers the time that the people were in slavery in in 
Egypt. And you all know the story about how God sent Moses to go to Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh says no. And then all this happens. So God destroys. He has the ten plagues. And he destroys all the firstborn of Egypt. A lamb was killed and sacrificed, and its blood was smeared on the doorway or the doorposts of certain specific of houses, and it was a symbol or a signal for God to pass over that particular house and not to destroy the firstborn. So ever since then, all over, from all over, every year annually, they gather in Jerusalem to celebrate this very, very important event and to remember, to remember. So the crowds are welcoming Jesus like a conquering hero, and they're cheering wildly, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, and they're just welcoming him. And it's like this, this um, feeling and excitement of just joyfulness, and, and, and people are being jubilant. And the word Hosanna, as we know, it's a Hebrew word that can be translated as save us now, save us now. And the words come from Psalm 118, Verses 25 and 26, uh, and it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And so this phrase and these words were very, very familiar. It wasn't just something that the people, the crowds on the street just made up together, but it's words that they knew. This psalm actually is part of the Hallel uh, Psalms, and it was used in the Passover liturgy of the people. So it was something that they were very, very familiar with, something that um, they used in their worship and in their liturgy. It's kind of like Christmas hymns for Christians. If I were to start you know, breaking out in hymns, Christmas hymns, we would all be familiar with them. And so this is a Hallel praise from the Psalms used for um, worship and part of their liturgy. The people recognize him, obviously, when they see Jesus coming and entering into the city, riding on this um, young donkey. They recognize him as the one that they've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. He is the one. He's the one that's going to come and save them from the oppression, from the rule of the Roman government. Never mind the fact that they were mistaken in the fact of how Jesus was going to um, save them and what he was going to save them from. What they were expecting and what they were thinking was different from what Jesus was there to do. So they weren't expecting this prince of peace, but rather they were expecting a prince of war, a conquering hero that was going to come and save them from the Romans. And when they realize this, what happens? When they realize the week progresses, and as they realize that he didn't come to save them, to overthrow this Roman government, their jubilant cries of Hosanna, save us, yes, finally the Messiah is here. Of course, you know, that turns, and their disappointment causes them to instead shout, crucify him. Yeah, get rid of him, kill him. We don't need him. He's not really the Messiah. And, and that turns during this week. But today is Palm Sunday. As he's entering, riding on the donkey, the people have nothing but love for him. They just love him. They expect that he is going to be that conquering hero on this Palm Sunday. All they want to do is they just want to honor him. And so what they do is it says, as we read, that they take their cloaks, they put the cloak on the donkey, they put their cloaks on the ground for him to walk on. Mark 11:8 says that they spread their cloaks even on the road, not just even on the donkey that he's riding, 
writing, but on the road. In Old Testament times, to show their respect to a king, people would actually put their clothes and put their cloaks, they would put it on the ground for the king to walk on. The people did this when Jehu was appointed the new king of Israel. If you look at 2 Kings 9, 12 and 13, Jehu says this, Here is what he told me, the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. And the people quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and they shouted, Jehu is king. So here, even in the Old Testament, you see Jehu is is anointed king. And people immediately, what do they do? They take off their clothes, their cloaks, and they put it under him. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of honoring the king. The crowds also, it says, cut branches. They went to the nearby fields where there were palm trees. They ran and they cut these branches off and they rushed back and they laid them all along the road before Jesus riding on the donkey so that the donkey could walk uh, on top of these branches, these palm trees, the branches. And it was a sign of great honor and it was a sign of great respect to have these branches on the ground as he walked. Um, This reminds me of the movie, oh man, you know, I looked it up what year this movie came out, and it's really old. It seems like yesterday to me, but how many of you guys saw the movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? Do you know what year it came out? 1988. Can't believe it. It just seemed like not too long ago, but in the movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy and James Earl Jones uh, is in the movie too as the king, and um, Eddie Murphy is the prince, but if you um, remember the movie, he had these ladies, and everywhere he went, they had these baskets, and what did they do? His foot couldn't touch the ground unless first the ladies threw rose uh, petals, and then the king would step out of the car, and then they would continually walk and throw rose petals, and the king could only walk where rose petals were first put on the ground. So that's a sign of this is a king, royalty, honor, you know, respect. And in that way, these palm branches are strewn along the road as Jesus riding the king, the Messiah, riding in on this donkey. That's what I'm reminded of. So on this day, the crowd's attitude is one of joyful acceptance. They've been waiting for this. This is it. This is the king. He is here. They have love for him. They have respect for him. And they just want to honor him, the long-awaited Messiah. Secondly, the second group is the disciples. Now, the second group of people that I want to look at are the disciples. As they're approaching Jerusalem, Jesus sends two of the disciples on a very special errand. He says to them, As they approached Jerusalem and came here, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say that the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went. They found the colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. Now, these two disciples, they must have wondered about this very strange request. Now, imagine again, put yourself in their place. If you're his disciples and he tells you this, he gives you these instructions, this very strange request. In all the time that the disciples have known him, 
Jesus has never ridden anywhere. They walked everywhere. Everywhere they went, they walked. And so you can imagine that the disciples are thinking, oh, why all of a sudden he's asking for us to go and, and, and bring this animal for him to ride on? You know, what's, what's it so different about today? Because, again, they're always used to walking everywhere. He's never done that before. And how are they to be sure that the owner of this colt, the owner of this donkey, is just going to let them go? Simply based on the words, the Lord needs it. Think about that for a moment. The Lord needs it. Based on those words alone, that these people are going to say, oh, okay, then, sure, take it. And let the, And you guys know that donkeys um, and animals, they're valuable. It's not like, you know, they're, it's just for anyone, but it, they are pretty valuable. And so for them to release it, and it says, they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. These people who were asking, hey, what are you doing untying the donkey? And they were let go. Just based on the words, the Lord needs it. The question is, did the two, though, thinking about this, the disciples, did they hesitate? Not at all. This is a strange request. They've never seen Jesus ride anywhere, but okay. And they don't even hesitate. They do go just as he instructed. They say what um, Jesus told them to say. No questions asked. The attitude and heart of these disciples here toward Jesus at this point at this point, here on Palm Sunday, their attitude up to this point is one of simple obedience. He is their teacher. He is their rabbi. What he says, they will do. They've seen him. They've been with him through the miracles. They've been with him. Uh, they've slept and eaten and walked and, and traveled with him. And so what he asks, they do out of obedience. No matter what Jesus requested of them, however bizarre, they did it. And I'm thinking of us today. Sometimes, you know, in our times of prayer or, um, I don't know, when we're at a revival or when we're in our Bible studies or, you know, we hear from God. We hear certain things. How many times do we hear from God and we think, and he's asking us to do something basically, and we're thinking, nah, that's too bizarre. That's too weird. No, that's not from God. Or we know it's from God, but because it's so bizarre, it's so weird, and because we're embarrassed, we're afraid, there's fear, um, because we're afraid of looking dumb, or for a variety of reasons, we don't obey. Think about that for a moment. Because I know God speaks to us every day today. I know that God asks us to do things every day. And many, many, many times, more often than not, we don't simply obey because it's too bizarre. As bizarre as going to the town ahead and asking randomly these people and bringing a cult, basically, bringing this animal. It's like if, you know, I don't know if God would ever ask this. Similar, again, modern day example would be, um, I, you know, I hear my car. In, in my driveway, I hear like my alarm going off or something like that, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And I look out the window, let's say, or I open my front door, and there's these two guys there, and they have broken into my car, and they're getting into my car, and I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're stealing my car. What are you doing? And they're like, the Lord needs it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, uh, Okay, then go in peace. The Lord needs my car, needs my, you know, Toyota Sienna minivan. Blessings. Yeah, the Lord needs a minivan. All right, bring it back shortly, you know. 
who, what? I mean, that is the most bizarre, bizarre thing. But that would be like maybe a modern day example. Like we will have God asking us randomly, I'm walking somewhere and God will be like, hey, you know, see that guy standing over there? Go pray for him. I'm going to admit to you that often, well, not often, but many times I have disobeyed and not gone to pray for that person because I was in a hurry or because I felt weird or I was doubtful that that was really from God or, I mean, there's so many excuses that you can come up with, you know, that God wants you to just stop and do something or stop and say something or, you know, and you're like, again, you're in a rush or, 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 for whatever reason, it's bizarre. That's not, you know, something they're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to call the cops on me or, or you know, prayers for healing. No, it's not going to work. I'm just going to end up looking stupid. And, you know, for all these reasons that we don't follow through, we're not simply obedient. So looking at the disciples here, these two, go find the cult, bring it, just say the Lord needs it. And they simply obey. That's the two disciples here today. No matter what Jesus requested, however bizarre, they did it. Now, why did Jesus want to ride into Jerusalem on a colt? A colt is a young donkey, a male donkey, um, and a female baby donkey is called a filly. But why did he want to ride into Jerusalem, particularly on this day, on this colt? It was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy, the Old Testament scripture that the prophet Zechariah wrote about. It was so funny because as I was looking up the book of Zechariah and looking up this, prophet, uh, this prophecy, I was thinking, we never read the book of Zechariah or preach from it or look it up. We only look it up and point to it on Palm Sunday when we're quoting it in the New Testament. So anyway, but Zechariah looked it up, um, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter um, Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is Zechariah 9, 9. And so he here, Jesus particularly wants to ride on this donkey entering into Jerusalem because of this prophecy from the Old Testament. I found this um, comparison chart. Jesus' first entry here, the triumphant entry on Palm Sunday on this day over 2,000 years ago, and we look ahead to Jesus' re-entry for his second coming, his coming again. First entry, he comes riding on a colt. Second time, he's coming riding on a great white horse. He came alone this time. Second, he comes with saints and angels and the whole, you know, all the heavenlies. First, he wore a crown of thorns. When he comes, he will, he will wear the crown of crowns. He's called the king of the Jews here. That's what he's accused of, of... Um, trying to be a king, he will be the king of kings at his second re-entry. He came as a man riding on this donkey. He will come as God and everyone will know it. He came meek and lowly, you know. He will come in power and glory with all the trumpets and fanfare. He hung on a cross this time around. He will sit on a throne in his second coming. He was judged and crucified. He will be the judge and he will reign. He came as a lamb and yes, he will be the lion. 
I didn't make this up, so I'm not that smart, but I found this list. Uh, I just did the transitional PowerPoint for you, but he will be the lion. I thought this was so awesome, this comparison of this Passover and this entry, and then the re-entry, his second coming, is so powerful. And thirdly, that I wanted to look at, we looked at the crowds, we looked at the disciples, and the third group, or the players in this uh, narrative is the donkey. I want to look at the donkey here. This brings me to this triumphant entry. It, it's really, a lot of it has to do with the donkey or the colt. What attitude do we find in this animal? In the animal, this donkey, what we find is humility. The humility, the unassuming donkey, symbolizes Jesus' humility as well. He comes riding in in all humbleness and meekness on this humble animal, this donkey. People usually think of donkeys in negative terms. They, when they think about a donkey, they think of it in negative terms. They talk about it in negative terms. They are very common expressions such as, you're stubborn as a mule, right? So they think that donkeys and mules are very stubborn. A mule is a type of a donkey. So stubborn as a mule, that's not a compliment. Being called a jackass, you know, if someone calls you a jackass, that's not a compliment, okay? A jack is what they call a male donkey, a jack. It's a real word, and male donkey. And as you all know, ass is another word for donkey. King James Version says ass many, many times. Um, Pastor Q's smiling. Do you guys remember the time that his sermon, uh, it was, he titled it, and he talked about the wild asses? Do you guys remember this? I never forget it. He kept talking about the wild asses running free. But anyway, the donkey um, <laughs> is known, again, King James Version is termed the ass. And you, anytime someone calls you an ass, it's never in a good way. You can never you know, construe that to mean something good, okay? And this is unfortunate. This is unfortunate because donkeys are valuable animals. They served humans for thousands of years, thousands of years. They're very valuable, and they were once prized as symbols of humility and gentleness and peace. You know, these are good animals. In biblical times, a king rode, he rode on a donkey into town when he was coming in peace. But a king rode on a stallion or a horse when entering a city, if he was entering as a conquering hero, or he was entering to make war, or he was entering into battle. That was the difference. The donkey was also referred to as a beast of burden. You guys have heard that phrase, right? The mule or the donkey is a beast of burden. It's an animal of service used to carry the burdens of people. Think about that for a moment. They can carry incredibly heavy loads. These animals of service, they carry burdens, and they carry people. They carry these loads for people. So if you imagine Jesus entering Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, declaring himself to be the king of peace, ready to carry the burdens of the people. That's such a beautiful image if you think about that and about this particular animal. Remember, this young donkey that Jesus is riding has never been ridden before. Specifically, Mark, it says, you know, go, you'll find this colt tied up, find this um, donkey that's never been ridden before. So it hasn't been broken. You guys know that term, right? When you have a new horse or an animal that you want to ride, it has to be broken in, meaning that it has to be trained. They're usually wild. They're not used to having someone sitting on their back. So they have to, the trainers have to go through a, a really difficult task of breaking them so that they will accept someone on their back. So this donkey has never been ridden before, means it's never been broken, not tamed for human use, for humans to ride on, and yet it is humble and submissive 
allowing Jesus to ride on him. Humble and submissive to have Jesus sit on him and to ride him. This donkey allows itself to be used by Jesus because the Lord needs it. He allows himself to be used by Jesus because the Lord needs it. Let me ask you guys a question. What does the Lord need from you? What is it that you have that the Lord needs? I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be used by the Lord. I would love to be used by the Lord. If God says to me, the Lord needs it, and the Lord wants to use you in this way, yes and amen to that. And so here he says, the donkey, I need you. If the Lord is speaking to you and saying, I need you, what is it that you have? What gift, what ability, what skill, just basically who you are that you can be used for the Lord as humble and submissive as this gentle donkey. The fourth character and the last one that I want to look at are the Pharisees. Yeah, you know the Pharisees, religious leaders. They always get bad rap. They always, people pick on them all the time. Um, so in this narrative, let's look at the Pharisees. What was their attitude concerning Jesus on this particular day, on this Palm Sunday? What was their attitude as they listened to this claim and the people's reaction of him being the Messiah? Matthew 21:15 says, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and they saw the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So the chief priests, the religious leaders, they were indignant. Some translations say that they were angry. So they're supposed to be the keepers of the law, these religious leaders. They're the ones who are the spiritual leaders of the people, spiritual leaders of the day. But Jesus had gained so much popularity and he, you know, so much renown, and he's gained such a following that they felt threatened. They felt resentful and they felt fearful. And there was outright hostility towards Jesus from these Pharisees. And this group had a lot to lose, if you think about it. These group of religious leaders, they had a lot to lose if the Romans thought that Jesus was attempting to become a king. Now, they're under Roman rule and Roman government, right? And they're being oppressed. But these religious leaders... They had a lot to lose. If the Roman government got wind of this and thought that among them, the Jewish people, that there was going to be someone that they wanted to make king. Luke 19.13, in Luke's version of the triumphant entry, when the crowds are shouting and causing this big ruckus, in verse 39, it says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Oh, I didn't click to it. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples when all this ruckus is happening. And in this highly charged atmosphere with thousands of pilgrims in the city, there's so many people there. You know, they're there for the Passover. People are shouting um, about the one who will, who's finally here to save them. All this is happening. Roman oppression is here too. And the Pharisees were afraid that, that they would attract the attention of the Roman soldiers and the Roman government and the Roman authorities. And what would happen is that the soldiers would be sent in to, to crush this rebellion or to crush this uprising. Because if people are saying, yes, he's the Messiah, he's going to save us, he's our king, he's our king, the Roman government, they don't want that. 
they don't want a coup, like a coup d'etat to happen. And so if, because of that, and the religious leaders, they have some semblance of power and authority and they don't want that to be taken away. And so yes, they're saying, you know, hush, you know, teacher, rebuke your disciples, keep them quiet, or the Roman soldiers are gonna come in and they're gonna crush this, you know, this uprising with brutal force. And all this bloodshed would happen. And it's understandable. But here's Jesus' reply, verse 40. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Meaning that what has been set in motion cannot be stopped. What has been set in motion now cannot be stopped. There's no turning back. The chain of events have begun, and it's going to end with his arrest, with his torture, with his death. And of course, we know the uh, end of the story that he is going to rise again. But at this point, his arrest, torture, death by the end of the week, and it cannot be undone. The chain of events have begun. So this day, Palm Sunday, was really the only time in Jesus' life that he allowed the people to declare him as king. Did you think about that? This is the only day where he openly allowed and received praise and received worship from the crowd. Usually, any other time he does a miracle, anytime you know, people will be like, you know, like even the demons are recognized, oh, you're the, you know, you're the savior, or oh, you're Jesus, or you're Messiah, you know. Anytime he gets that, what does he do? shh, don't tell anyone, my time has not yet come, you know? He doesn't want people to know. He, he actually hushes people. He tells them to keep quiet and not tell people about it. This is the only time where he's riding in, people are doing this, Hosanna, Messiah, Messiah, and he's not like, shh, he's not like this. This is the one time because his time had indeed come. This today is Palm Sunday, 2019. And this is the week, Holy Week, Passion Week. This is the week that we see where we fast, we pray, we meditate upon the events of the week that happened so long ago. And we need to examine our hearts and our attitudes. We need to examine our hearts and our attitudes toward Jesus. And reviewing, remember the crowds. Remember the crowds that we talked about. And I want to ask you, did you joyfully receive the good news when you first heard about Jesus, the Messiah? Did you give him a warm reception in your heart and in your life? When someone shared the gospel with you for the first time, when you heard about the good news, when you heard and when you accepted and when you felt the sinfulness of yourself and received the good news and the salvation of Jesus Christ, were you jubilant and did you give a warm reception in your heart and in your life? Or since then, have you experienced disappointment, disillusionment, enough so much so that you no longer feel this joyfulness? You no longer have this warm reception towards him and no longer have the joy and the hope, but instead, it's more of a burden coming to church on Sundays. It's more of a burden or it's more of just going through the motions and exercises of this Christian life. Think about the disciples, the two disciples, such obedience. Do you have such an attitude of obedience toward God? Do you agree with the prophet Samuel when he says, to obey is better than sacrifice? We think that the greatest thing as Christians is sacrifice. 
Oh, I'm sacrificing this for the Lord. Oh, I'm choosing this and I'm making a sacrifice for God. We think, oh, I'm so righteous. Yeah, I'm going to sacrifice for God. And yet, like the examples I gave earlier, how many times are we being disobedient, simply not listening to the voice of God when he asks us to do bizarre things, what we think is bizarre, right? Thirdly, the donkey, the attitude of humility. Do you identify with the donkey, this attitude of humility towards God and his people? Are you humble in dealing with your employers, your bosses, your coworkers? Are you humble in dealing with your friends, your community, your mother, with your kids? Are you humble in dealing with your friends, with people who drive really slow? It's my pet peeve. Humility in driving. And lastly, the Pharisees. Some of you may be able to sympathize with the Pharisees. Yeah. Some of you guys here will be able to sympathize more with the Pharisees because you're wanting to keep the status quo. You don't want to rock the boat. You've lived how many years as a Christian? You tithe. You come to church. You've become a deacon. You teach Sunday school. You don't cheat anyone. You pray before you eat. You know, you do these things, but you want to keep the status quo. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to shake up your life. You're fearful. You're resentful. You're feeling threatened by the cost of discipleship. The things that God is pushing you towards as you're pressing in, the the opportunities, uh, he's pushing you out of your comfort zone. He's asking more of you. You've already given so much, but now he wants even more. This is too much. Some of you might be able to identify with the Pharisees at this point, really, and say, I'm a good Christian. I'm doing what I need to be doing, and you don't want to rock the boat. Too much of a burden to be a disciple. Too much of a burden to carry my cross and follow Jesus every single day. As I close, I just want to say that this week, Holy Week, Jesus will experience the absolute most agonizing, worst, incredible, painful week of his life, more than any man. It's going to be the toughest week of anyone's life. Things have been set in motion. Our Lord is headed for the cross. It's coming on Friday. The Lord is heading for the cross. What is our attitude as we meditate this week during Passion Week? The passion of the Christ, the suffering of our Lord. How closely do, I, do we identify with that? What is our attitude this week? How will we respond to him?